Amen. Revival is something that I believe every child of God ought to pray for and ought to live in the anticipation of. We have given on Friday night some different definitions of revival, but biblically, revival is a coming of God amongst his people. The prophet Habakkuk prayed that the Lord would revive his work in the midst of the years, and in the midst of the years would make his presence and power known, and that in wrath God would remember mercy. And then Habakkuk simply went on to say in verse 3 of the third chapter of his prophecy, God came. And that's simply what revival is. Revival is a coming of God afresh amongst his people. Or as the prophet Isaiah prayed, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down. God is pleased to come whenever he comes in revival. And it's like the heavens are opened and God comes down and dwells in the midst of his people in a new and living way. Or as it says in the book of Acts, chapter 3 and verse 19, revival is described there as times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. And we certainly and desperately need revival in our day and generation. But perhaps the great challenge is this morning, do we have a hunger for it? Are we thirsty for God this morning? The Bible says, blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Or the prophet Isaiah again said, Under God I will pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. Or the Savior in John chapter 7 said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth in me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. God seems to come to a people that are hungry. And God seems to visit a people that are thirsty. Whenever God sent revival in 1904 to the land of Wales, that revival was traced back primarily under God to a group of young people. And one night, God's servant, this great minister in the Calvinistic Methodist Church of Wales, was addressing a congregation of young people. And he didn't often do this, but in the course of his address, he asked the young people a question. And he wanted an audible answer. And he simply asked the question to the young people, what does Jesus Christ mean to you? And of course, there was silence. They'd never been asked to respond audibly in a meeting like this. And he says, I'm serious. I want somebody to answer this question. What does Jesus Christ mean to you? And a young man rose to his feet and he says, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Then he sat down. And the pastor said, well, what you have said is right, but it doesn't answer my question. It is true that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. But I'm asking today, what does he mean to you personally? And a young girl who later on in life went on to become a missionary. Her name was Flory Evans. She stood up and she simply said this. Jesus Christ, yes, is the Savior of the world. And I love him with all of my heart. And she sat down. But there was something with the sincerity and with the emotion and intensity that she said those words that 
somehow seemed to melt the congregation around her. Jesus Christ is the saviour of the world. And I love him with all of my heart. And sitting in that meeting, there was a young man by the name of Evan Roberts. He was in his early 20s. And Evan Roberts began to get a tremendous burden for revival. And his prayer was, bend us, O Lord. Bend the church and shake the world. And soon after, God had sent revival to wheels at that particular time. And there was a group of young people that sitting in that meeting got a tremendous hunger and a tremendous thirst for God. And I believe it's a little bit like what the psalmist is speaking of here in Psalm 110 and verse number 3. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. It seems that God comes to a people whose hearts have been made willing by the Spirit of God. And whenever there's really a willingness to go through with God and to really seek God and to really come to know God and to serve God and to love God with all of the heart, I believe that God can come and God does come with tremendous blessing. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. And this willingness is seen over in the New Testament in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, primarily in the first two chapters, whenever you had 120 people gathered together in the upper room, and they were seeking God, they were met together in unity, and they had a desire that God's Spirit would come, and God would fulfill His promises, and God would do something deep and real and genuine and lasting, in their day and generation. Those believers that we read about in the opening chapters of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, they had got no real financial clout. They had got no political backing. They had got very little by way of friends. They had no gimmicks to employ. They had no entertainment to offer. They had no plan B if if God's promises were not fulfilled. They didn't have a lot of experience, spiritually speaking, but they had an expectation for God to come and a hunger and a thirst and also a willingness to really go through with God. The people to whom revival comes, I believe, are a people that are willing. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. And revival could certainly be described as a day of God's power, God making bare his mighty arm, and God coming in revival blessing. What type of willingness are we speaking about? Well, I believe as we consider the early church, certainly they were a people willing to pursue a purpose. God, I believe, visits and blesses a people willing to pursue a purpose. What is our purpose as believers today? What is our purpose even as human beings? The old Westminster divines answered the question well. What is man's chief end? What is man's primary purpose? What is man's main reason for existence? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And I believe that early church, those believers gathered there in the upper room, before the day of Pentecost was fully come, were a people willing to pursue a purpose. 
Jesus Christ our Lord in Matthew 6 and 33 said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. And that was the purpose that the early church were pursuing. They were willing to pursue that purpose of really seeking God and seeking the extension of his kingdom. That's what they really came to understand whenever the Lord had said to them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. Or ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. And they discovered this is our great purpose. And 120 were gathered together in that upper room, seeking after and pursuing God. Now, we have to note this morning, primarily it was a spiritual purpose. These early believers were not consumed with temporal things. They were not taken up with the visible, but rather they were pursuing that which was spiritual and that which was invisible. The church at Corinth sadly failed in this area. Later on they were taken up with personalities and they were taken up with programs and they were consumed with things that were very much temporal. And we often need to remind ourselves the words of our Savior when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And the early church seemed to understand that. That in pursuing this tremendous purpose of laboring and living for God's kingdom, they were pursuing a purpose which was spiritual. Not carnal, not physical, not temporal, but living for that which was spiritual. And furthermore, living for that which is eternal. I wonder today, friends, this morning, are we living for that which is spiritual? Are we devoting our lives to that which is eternal? Or are we living for things that in the grand scheme of things, whenever we stand someday at the judgment seat of Christ, will not really count for very much at all? A number of years ago I read the biography of Leonard Ravenhill. And the title of the biography was simply, In Light of Eternity. In Light of Eternity. Sometimes people pass off Christians that are sold out for Jesus Christ and they will say, the problem with that individual is he's so or she is so heavenly minded that they're, that they're no earthly use. But I believe today that the more heavenly and spiritually and eternally minded a person is, the more earthly use they will be. Maybe the problem is today that many of us are so earthly minded that were of very little heavenly use. Written in Leonard Ravenhill's tombstone, is what you are living for worth Christ dying for? The early church were willing to pursue a purpose, a purpose that was spiritual, a purpose that was eternal, and also a purpose that was universal. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, Ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, your immediate locality, and in all Judea, your immediate province, and then across the fence, as it were, and in all Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. They were pursuing something 
that was vital and critical for all people. The knowledge of the gospel. I wonder today, is that the purpose that we are pursuing? And certainly as well, it was an essential purpose. Because Jesus Christ needs to be uplifted. And the souls of men and women need to be reached. And the gospel needs to be declared. And multitudes around us are living and dying without a saviour. And God's honour, I believe, today is at stake. What could be more important in this day and generation than living for Christ and living for his kingdom and seeking to bring honour and praise and glory to him? What type of people does God come to in revival blessing? He comes to a people who are willing to pursue a purpose. But furthermore, he comes to a people who are willing to publicize a person. Acts chapter 1 verse number 8. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me. The Son of God saying whenever you go out into all the world. And you preach the gospel. And you live amongst men and women in this present evil and wicked age. You're seeking to uplift and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about a mere personality. It's not about a particular group of people. It's not about even a denomination. But it should be all about the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that's why the Apostle Paul was so successful in his ministry. He said to the church at Corinth, Whenever I came among you, I determined not to know anything among you. Save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said to the church at Colossae that in all things Christ must have the preeminence. John the Baptist gave it as his testimony. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's like John was saying, let my name perish and be forgotten. Let's not have people talking about John the Baptist. But let's uplift and magnify the Son of God. And more and more and more may Christ be seen. And may self be hidden even behind him. People willing to publicize a person. It's my conviction this morning. That whenever a man or a woman get converted. They get converted with the view to uplifting and glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. The life ought to be a witness and a testimony to him. I wonder today, does your life and mine bear testimony, bear witness to the person of Jesus Christ? Can you witness with your life by personal experience? What the early church had in Acts chapter 1 throughout the rest of the book was something that was real and experiential. In Acts 4.20, the apostles said, We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Yes, we're speaking from the word of God. Yes, we're being faithful to the doctrines of the faith. But we are also speaking by personal experience. We can tell people that Jesus Christ really saves and really satisfies and really sanctifies because we know it to be true in our own lives. I wonder today, do you have a real vital experience of God? The life should be able to testify by experience but also by example. There's no substitute for the example and testimony of a holy life. The Apostle Paul said that we are living epistles. 
Robert Murray McShean was a tremendous man of God. I think it was 29 years of age that the Lord called him home. He only had a very short window of opportunity in which to serve the Lord, a ministry that maybe only lasted in the region of five or six years in the church in St. Peter's in the great city of Dundee in Scotland. And after Robert Murray McShane passed away, an unopened letter was found in his study. Some of his friends and family, they opened up that letter and they read it and it was the testimony of a young woman who was converted several weeks before his passing in his church in St. Peter's. And she remarked in the letter that she wanted him to know that during the course of one particular service on the Sabbath morning, she had come to trust Jesus Christ the Lord as her Savior. And in the letter she says, Mr. McShane, it wasn't so much the words that you spoke that first impressed me. It wasn't the structure of your sermon. It wasn't your eloquence. But it was something about your countenance and your demeanor, even as you come out of the minister's room and entered into the pulpit and opened the word of God and began to conduct the service. There was something about your very countenance that testified to me about the reality of Jesus Christ. Always bearing about in the body, the Apostle Paul said, the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. The life must be a witness to the person of Jesus Christ, but so must the lips. People need to hear the gospel. Christ must be preached in all of his fullness. And the early church were a people willing to publicize a person. And as soon as they were filled with the Spirit of God, they went out into the streets and lanes of the city of Jerusalem and they told people not about themselves, but they simply told people about the Son of God and they simply shared the gospel. Are we involved in publicizing a person, uplifting the Lord Jesus Christ with our lives and also with her lips. Not only were they willing to publicize a person and willing to pursue a purpose, but I believe as well they were also willing to plead a promise. You think about this church that was met in Acts chapter 1 and in Acts chapter 2. They had a Savior that most people felt was dead. They had a gospel that nobody believed. They had very little by way of manpower and influence. And if God did not fulfill his covenant promises in them and to them and through them, the whole thing would grind to a halt very quickly. But the Son of God had said, tarry in Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of your Father. And then in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And the whole revival that broke out on the day of Pentecost was just based really on one singular promise. That God would supernaturally infill and equip these men and women to live for him and to serve him and to preach him and to glorify him in their day and generation. The baptism of the Spirit of God. Verse number 5 of Acts 1, the Savior says, John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days thence. And ye shall receive power 
after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. I believe that there in Acts chapter 1, as far as they were concerned, this was perhaps the most vital promise that God gave them. Without the infilling and without the outpouring and without the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God in their lives, their ministry ultimately would be doomed to failure. These were men that were sincere. But if they are honest, in the Garden of Gethsemane, they were frightened. In the Garden of Gethsemane, they fainted in the place of prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, they fled whenever the enemies of the Lord came. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we might simply say they failed. Now, how are they going to succeed now in preaching the gospel? They're just the same men that they were before. But God is now giving them a promise. And he's telling them, wait in Jerusalem. The arm of the flesh will fail you. You can't possibly survive and you can't possibly succeed unless you experience this infilling of the Spirit of God. And the reality is as well, it's the same for us. We will fail in living for God unless we know what it is day and daily to be led and guided and directed and controlled and infilled by the Spirit of God. The promise was vital. But not only was the promise that they were pleading vital, the promise was also valid. In Luke 24, 49, the Son of God, our Lord, described it as being the promise of the Father. And therefore, it was a valid promise. It wasn't some promise that some man was giving to them. This was the very promise of God himself. And it was ratified in chapter 1 and verse number 8 of Acts whenever the Savior gave the promise again. And so it's a valid promise. You know, one thing that really influenced me as a young Christian around about the age of 19 or 20, a lady in a Christian bookstore recommended a little book entitled Channel of Revival. And it was the biography of the Reverend Duncan Campbell. And a large part of that book was taken up with the revival that took place on the Isle of Lewis from 1949 to 1953. And there's a story recorded in that book of a little parish up in the northern part of the Isle of Lewis, a little parish called Arnold, where there was a real resistance to the preaching of the Word of God and to the awakening that was spreading slowly across the islands. And they met together in a granite farmhouse to pray that the Spirit of God would move. And a young blacksmith was called to pray. He was just a, a young man in his late 20s, early 30s. And he stood to his feet and he began to pray. And he prayed in this fashion. And I suppose it's a way that maybe very few of us would even dare to really pray. He says, Lord, do you know that your honor is at stake? He says, Lord, you have made a promise in your word. To pour water in him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. He was quoting from Isaiah 44. And he says, Lord, you're not doing it. And he says, Lord, I don't know how other men stand today in your presence. I don't know how the elders stand or how the ministers stand. But Lord, if I know anything about my own heart, I'm standing before you as an empty vessel. And I'm hungry and thirsty. And Lord, you have promised to pour water in him that is thirsty. But Lord, you're not doing it. And then he stopped and he says, Lord, I challenge you to fulfill your covenant promises. 
and do that which you have promised to do. And suddenly the Spirit of God came down. The people testified into that home and the place was shaken and the Spirit of God really moved in that parish and in that locality. I wonder could we dare come before God and pray in such a manner. Lord you have promised to do certain things. And if we know anything about our own hearts, we're empty and we're seeking you with all of our hearts. And do we dare to plead a promise in such a manner? The promise was vital. The promise was valid. The promise as well, of course, in Acts 2 was vindicated. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were gathered. And they were all filled with the Spirit and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. And certainly it was a valuable promise. For without the fulfillment of that promise, nothing could possibly have happened. I don't know about you this morning, but the more I live the Christian life, the more I become acutely aware of the words that the Savior gave. And he said in John 15, without me ye can do nothing. And unless the Holy Ghost moves in our churches, and unless the Spirit of God moves in the midst of his people, and unless the Spirit of God moves in our land and nation again, I believe we're in deep, deep trouble, and only the outpouring of the Spirit of God can rescue this nation of ours. God says, my people shall be willing in the day of my power. And in the Acts of the Apostles, we have a people willing to pursue a purpose, Willing to publicize above and beyond everything else a person. Willing to plead a promise. Of course as well they were willing to persevere in prayer. Acts 1.14. These all continued with one accord in prayer. The previous verses make mention of the upper room. The disciples and all of the men and women gathered together in the upper room. About 120 of them. And they're praying earnestly. Now, generally speaking, we will pray earnestly whenever a crisis comes into our lives. Whenever a problem arises in the home, we will pray, and rightly so. But will we give ourselves to earnest seeking after God for the souls of men and for the uplifting of Jesus Christ? In Acts chapter 1 and in Acts chapter 2, you've got fellowship in prayer. The revival in Pentecost was preceded by united corporate prayer. The prayer meeting was vital for the church in the Acts of the Apostles. Before they went out preaching, they met together for prayer. And incidentally, it's the same if you look at the prayer life of our Lord. Before every miracle, or at least after every miracle, you read about the Lord praying. Before he commenced his earthly ministry, he spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness fasting and praying. Before he went to the cross, he spent the night in prayer. While he was on the cross, he was praying. Somebody once said concerning our Lord's life and ministry, 33 years of living, three years of preaching, one tremendous act of dying, but since he has died and ascended into heaven, 2,000 years of praying. What an emphasis on prayer, fellowship and prayer. There was also, of course, focus on prayer. There was certainly a lot of faith in prayer, but definitely as well, there was fervency in prayer. 
The Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Leonard Ravenhill once said, God does not answer prayer. God answers desperate prayer. Maybe our prayers are not always answered because they're not really all that earnest. Not really all that sincere. But here's a people in Acts 1 and Acts 2 and they're desperate. They believe and they know unless God answers your prayers, unless God fulfills his promises, we will never be able to fulfill the will and the word of God and the plan of God for our lives. Jacob once said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Peggy and Christine Smith were two old saints of God in the Isle of Lewis. One was 84 and one was 82. One was absolutely blind and the other was crippled and bent double with arthritis. And such was their physical condition that they couldn't leave their little cottage at the side of the road. But they prayed and they prayed and they prayed for months coming into almost a year and Ultimately, God came and God sent revival. And whenever the local minister of the parish church in Barvis visited their home in the first week of that tremendous awakening, he came and he says, want to encourage you that God has answered prayer and God has sent revival. And one of the sisters said, we know he has. We came to an assurance in the small hours of the morning that God had heard her prayer. We literally felt the powers of darkness retreating in the Lamb of God taking the field. Revival comes to a people who are willing. Are we willing today? Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. People willing to pursue a purpose, willing to publicize a person, willing to plead a promise, willing to persevere in prayer. Does prayer have an important place in your public life and in your private life? There's always more room for people in the prayer meeting of the local church. Somebody said the prayer meeting has become the Cinderella of the church. We're often embarrassed perhaps like the two sisters in the story of Cinderella embarrassed about their younger sister and they tried to hide her away and they didn't like to talk about her. But the reality was that Cinderella was the most beautiful one in the whole family. And rather than apologizing, being embarrassed about the prayer meeting, we need to realize that the prayer meeting can become the most beautiful meeting in the entire calendar of the church. One last thing about a people willing to experience God's blessing, a people willing to pay the price. A people willing to pay the price. If you have a marginal reference Bible, it might have recorded beside verse number 3 of Psalm 110, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Thy people shall offer themselves willingly. In the day of thy power. And what do we have in that upper room in the day of Pentecost and in the days leading up to it, the ten days leading up to it? We have a people who were willing to offer themselves completely and absolutely and unreservedly unto God. Picture that 120 people despised. They looked fanatical sitting there after the ascension of our Lord into glory. And from then to the death Pentecost, ten days waiting, seeking God continually in that upper room. Probably looked absolutely crazy. But you know, they were willing to pay the price. They were willing to really go through with God. And I'm sure today all of us desire God's blessing. 
I'm sure every Christian today wants God's blessing. But are we willing to really go through with God and really pay the price? You know, sometimes my wife says to me, you, you could be doing with a, a new suit. I have a suit there. I, have, I think I had it on on Friday night. It must be about 10 or 15 years old. And maybe the sleeve and the insides hanging out of it. Some of the stitchings come out of it. But I just like it. But sometimes I think I need to go and get a new suit. But you know what it's like? You go in and you see a suit and you think, that's a lovely suit. How much is it? And the man in the shop says, well, it's uh, maybe 300 pounds or 400 pounds or maybe 500 pounds. And if you're like me, you think, I'll just make do with what I've got for a little bit longer. I'm not willing to pray that much. And sometimes we just long for God's blessing. But whenever we realize that there's a price that has to be paid, we think, well, we're maybe just content with what we've got. You say, well, what sort of price are you pray to talking about? I'm talking about the price of surrender. Thy people shall offer themselves willingly in the day of thy power. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present or give your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He's talking about a life on God's altar. How many of us are really there? Solomon said in Proverbs 23, 26, My son, give me thy heart. Do I believe whenever God has got the heart, he's got everything? One old song says that God wants more than Sundays and more than Wednesday nights. He says, I don't want your money, I want your life. Does God have your heart today? God's got maybe an hour, an hour and a half on a Sunday morning or Maybe an hour at some other time during the week. But by and large, we keep, don't we? We keep so much for ourselves. But God wants us to love him with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, and all of our strength. And maybe today God doesn't really have your heart. Would you give your life to God this morning? And give him your heart. Say like the old hymn writer said, take my heart. It is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. The price of surrender. Then I believe as well there's also the price of separation. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's my conviction that many in our day and generation are content to belong to a, a church or a fellowship or a denomination that is separated from error and apostasy and the charismatic movement and the ecumenical movement. And they have ourselves convinced, well, that's what separation is. And there is such a thing and there needs to be such a thing. And it's a biblical thing to have ecclesiastical separation. But what about personal separation? Is your life separated from sin and from worldliness and carnality? But more importantly, is your life separated unto the Lord Jesus Christ? There is such a thing as negative separation, separation from, and many people boast in that, that they don't do all of these things. But they're not separated unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And unless we're separated from, negatively, and separated unto, positively, there can be no power. If you disconnect either terminal on your car battery, there'll be no spark and your car will not move an inch. 
There needs to be both positive and negative separation. Are you separated today unto the Lord Jesus Christ? What sort of price are we talking about? Surrender, separation, and sacrifice. Sacrifice. We often talk about C.T. Studd. He played cricket for England in the first Ashes tournament. And to be a professional cricketer for England in those days would be like the equivalent of being a, a top premiership footballer in our day and generation. C.T. Studd was a wealthy, successful, well-educated young man from a very wealthy background, very successful. The world was at his feet. He met a girl called Priscilla Stewart, who incidentally was from the town of Lisburn. There were three spinning, linen spinning mills in the Lisburn borough. The island spinning mill, where the council offices now are. Barber Threads out at Heldon, which was the largest linen thread manufacturer in the world before various synthetic fibers and textiles come in. Linen was used for virtually everything from fishing nets to manufacture of clothes and the, the, the very stitching that kept your shoes together. And then there was another mill in the town centre, William Stewart's Mill. Whenever the 59 revival broke out in Lisburn, very, very suddenly, one Sunday morning, multitudes who didn't usually go to church wanted to go to a place of worship. And so they went to the cathedral, they went to the First Presbyterian Church, and they went to other places. But such was the crowds of people wanting to get into a place of worship during the 59 revival that the churches couldn't even begin to accommodate the crowds that were there. But William Stewart was a Christian. He heard about this and he opened up his gates for his factory because behind the factory building there was a huge bleaching green. And people met together on a Sunday afternoon for a prayer meeting, thousands of them to seek the face of God. William Stewart's daughter, Priscilla Stewart, the family home is still there, McGuinness's solicitors. She married C.T. Studd. And before they get married, she gave away all of their money completely to the Lord's work. She just had this idea that if we keep anything for ourselves, we're not really living by faith. And they began to really prove God. And C.T. Studd said, we've only one life. And it will soon be passed. And only what's done for Jesus Christ will last. And he also coined that famous little verse, if Jesus Christ be God, and folks he is, and if he died for me, and friends, this morning he did, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. There was a man willing to pay the price. Are we willing this morning to go through with God? My people, God says, shall be willing in the day of my power. Maybe you've never given your life to God at all. You've never come to Christ. I wonder would you be willing to do that this morning, to say yes to the Son of God, to trust him with your heart, to trust him with your soul, to trust him with your life. Finish with the words of Isaac Watts, tremendous hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, in which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt in all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul 
my life. 